You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to an author debriefing from the International Spy Museum. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Here at the Spy Museum, we get the world's most interesting authors, including journalists, scholars, former spies and intelligence officers, coming in to answer questions about their latest works dealing with espionage, intelligence, and other national security issues. Please join me in listening to another of our selected author debriefings. My guest today is Mark Riebling. He's a historian of particularly U.S. history, an essayist and policy analyst. He's done a great deal on national security, the history of ideas, and quite a bit on Vatican foreign policy during the Cold War and the Second World War. Uh, the book I'm most familiar of, of his is a book called Wedge, which is a very respected work on the sort of, uh, if you will, conflict between the FBI and the CIA uh, during periods uh, actually leading up to the present, because you've done quite a bit on uh, through 9-11. I'd just like to mention uh, while, we're, while we're here that Mark has also served in 2002-2006 as research director for the Center for Policing Terrorism. And he partnered with uh, the LAPD chief, William Bratton, who's now in New York, uh, to, administer, to administer the National Counterterrorism Academy. And he later provided support to NYPD Deputy Commissioner David Cohen, who was a former CIA officer and was advising the New York chief on terrorism up there. That's quite interesting, Mark. Um, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here, Peter. Uh, I'm delighted to have you here. I look forward to a very interesting conversation. I should say, by the way, you were uh, graduated from Dartmouth, studied at uh, uh, UC Berkeley, and then got your PhD from Columbia. Uh, not my PhD, but definitely Columbia for graduate work, yes. For, for your graduate yes. work, okay, which included quite a bit in philosophy besides, as well as history. Yes, uh, ancient yeah. philosophy especially. Yeah. And, um, but, I, but I'm interested, even before we get into your book, which is Church of Spies, uh, which I thoroughly enjoyed reading. It's a very, very richly researched book, and uh, I think, I think it, it will have a, a, an impact. We'll see how long it takes to have that. Let me just ask you, uh, right here at the top of the interview, um, are you still engaged in research on current uh, concerns about terrorism and about the phenomenon of terrorism? Uh, not directly. However, I would say that a lot of my findings in Church of Spies, 
I felt led not only back to the past, but certainly were applicable to the present in terms of the motivations of people to engage in clandestine or, and or violent activities. Um, you are, I'm sure, familiar with the acronym MICE, M-I-C-E, sure. standing yeah. for the motivations, so, and, and which is motivations for people to engage in secret work include um, money, ideology, coercion, and uh, ego. I think that's right. And uh, this definitely is the ideology piece of it. And there's a phrase, conscience followers, that people have where you can often get very highly motivated assets to do things. And when I was working for Dave Cohen and working with the NYPD and working with, not for, but with um, other three-letter agencies, one of the things that I, I looked at was people's religious motivation and what, how did people operate, for instance, if you're a jihadist, how did this compare with what the Jesuits were doing in Elizabethan England? Religious motivation, engaged in things. If you are a British Protestant, you believe that the Jesuits plotted to um, blow up the British Parliament in 1605, and it's still celebrated over there as Guy Fawkes Day, right? Mm -hmm. The day they yes. caught caught these, um, these these people who were conspiring in religious terrorism. So I kind of looked at these things, patterns over time, and when I came to look at the Vatican and its secret operations during the Second World War, I was sensitized to some of these patterns by the work I'd done in um, in counterterrorism, counter counterintelligence. Yeah. Well, I think that's fascinating. I always, I'm often asked, because I talk a lot to young people here and others, uh, about my experiences in the Cold War as a uh, member of the clandestine service of CIA. And of course, we worked from a framework of truly believing that we were in the front trenches mm -hmm. of the conflict, the war, the Cold War with the Soviet Union and communism. And that was, you can, it's not quite a, a religious uh, motivation in the narrow sense, but it's certainly a framework of idealism. It certainly comes under the ideology aspect of your, of your MICE term. And, and I found, too, that, yeah, MICE is, is a little acronym that's handy. Yeah. But more often than not, people's motivation, certainly including mine, uh, was a blend of things. It was a mix. It's rarely just a discrete thing, mm -hmm. I think. I think people act out of more than one simple motivation, unless, you know, it's revenge or something like that, and then, uh, and then and the, and be the church, highly focused. Sure, yeah, and in the church's case, they have not only um, this ideological motivation, especially if they feel that the, the faith is being under siege as they felt it was under Hitler, but they have one of the big problems of clandestine operations solved, which is cover, because religious people, uh, especially Catholic priests, have pretty much a reason to be anywhere, whether it's missionary activity or I went to confession, you know, there's the whole seal of the confessional, I can't tell because it's privilege information, almost like attorney-client privilege. Sure. Uh, they also have a communications network, and uh, which is has couriers who go all over Europe and then even, of course, into what we call denied areas, and this is very helpful because, as you also know from working in the clandestine services, the most dangerous moment for any um, person who's working undercover is when they have to communicate. At, at some point, a courier or someone is going to need to get in touch with you. After all, that's how we finally caught bin Laden in a certain sense, right? He had to communicate with the outside world. Yes. So, so this was um, something that the church is very good at. And I would just say this by way of broadest possible context and people getting their minds around uh, how the church could be engaged in espionage is that for the first 300 years of its existence, um, the Christian religion was an underground organization. It was 
not uh, allowed really to exist. They were meeting in catacombs and crypts. And they had no idea, the church fathers, that they were going to become uh, the established religion of the Roman Empire. So for the first 300 years, it was in the DNA of the church that they were a clandestine organization. And not only were, was the Bible uh, not allowed to be read by Catholics or believers, Christians, but the Our Father was a classified top secret. So it wasn't until Martin Luther came around that uh, individual Catholics or Christians were allowed to read the Bible. So there's a long tradition in, of church history, which is unknown to most people today, called the discipline of secrecy. And this came uh, very much uh, to the fore during the Nazi period, and I discuss it in Church of Spies. No, you discuss several of those things which, which sort of bear on understanding intelligence, bear on, a, on understanding the secret world, the world of intelligence, espionage, and so forth. Um, l let me just take a couple of the elements that you go into in some degree. Um, one, of, one of which is the, the church. We're both using the term the church, and here we're referring primarily to the Catholic church. Um, and in your book, of course, you include, you certainly focus on the, the activities of the Catholic Church and elements of it, uh, but as well as the Protestant Church, as, as some of its members, some of whose names we know, uh, also played a role. Um, in, 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 in the research that you did, which is quite considerable, it's, it's really very impressive, um, you had access to some church records, you had access to declassified documents of World War II, of the Allies, um, and you, you do focus on the church. People, I think, on the outside, and I simply by that mean people who are not Catholics, who are not in the church, look at it and, and, and they see it either as the Vatican, a state, uh, or they see it as a church, in the religious sense, with a head, the Pope, and so I think it can be uh, a mystery in some ways to the public outsiders. Let me ask you a question right off the bat. There's a lot in here about intelligence, couriers, secret messages. The church consists of the Vatican, which is a state, mm -hmm. and conducts relations with other states. Is there a Vatican intelligence service as such? Not as such, and this is one of the most interesting findings of my book, which is that you don't need an intelligence bureaucracy to have intelligence activity with global reach. Um, I believe, and many other people who have written about this believe, that the Catholic Church has the world's oldest and best intelligence system. That's a quote from Robin Winks, the author of Cloak and Gown, Scholars in the Secret War, a classic book. And uh, however, you know, it's got this global reach because there are priests everywhere. There's a, a million priests and nuns all over the world. Um, but its footprint, its organizational footprint is really zero, unless you count the people who work in the Vatican Secretary of State and collect intelligence in the process of foreign diplomatic um, operations. And they have nuncios, which are basically papal ambassadors or representatives in 150 countries. And that's pretty good. And as you know, the Bureau of Intelligence and Research in our State Department uh, the State Department of the United States traditionally handled a lot of our intelligence and a lot of its open or diplomatic intelligence. And so it may not be clandestine intelligence, but it, it affects how you interpret what intelligence, uh, clandestine intelligence you get. So that's an important piece of it. it you don't have to have a, a bureaucracy to engage in really important uh, secret work. The second thing I'd say is that, you know, the Catholic Church is not a monolith. 
um, really nothing is a monolith if you think about it, but especially not the Catholic Church. You have the Pope, you have the Vatican, you have Catholics as individual Catholics in all these different countries. You have the religious orders such as the Jesuits, the Dominicans, the Benedictines, and they report, they report not directly to the bishops in the country, they bypass the bishops and report directly to the Pope through the headquarters of their orders in Rome. So this is a kind of direct line that you can use if you're a pope and you want to you want to do something off the books and and sometimes there are, are reasons to do things off the books. We're usually used to thinking about maybe Renaissance popes doing this, but not the popes in the you know in today. However, I think most people are, accept now that the Solidarity Movement in Poland did have support from um, the Vatican when that was going on, uh, John Paul II. And um, then there's the person of the Pope who can act in secret capacities independently of his organization, just using his secret, sacred social networks, as I would call them. And I would compare this to the way that the White House ran Iran-Contra out of its kind of a, the back pocket of the you know, president's White House. It was a, a White House organization that used the assets available to the federal government, but it was hidden within those things. And so Ollie North had license from the very top to kind of go around and do what he wanted. And Pius XII did very much the same thing during Hitler's time. And that's why I was very careful to subtitle this book, The Pope's Secret War Against Hitler. In the same way that, for instance, what we did in Nicaragua in the 1980s was Reagan's Secret War. It was not the war of the whole federal government, certainly not of Barry Goldwater and the people in Congress who were against it. And in the same way, there were a lot of sympathizers with the Nazis within the Catholic Church. They didn't really like the racism part. They didn't like the persecution of the church, but they liked the anti-communism. They liked the authoritarianism. They did a deal with Hitler to protect Catholic rights in, in, in uh, Nazi Germany. So it was an ambiguous, shadowy picture. And when within this twilight kind of moral picture, the German resistance to Hitler in October 1939 made contact with the Pope through a, a lay Catholic agent uh, who had the nickname Joey Ox. They, they reached out to him, this Munich lawyer, Josef Mueller, Joey Ox, and they said, we want the Pope's help in getting rid of Hitler. We want the Pope to be the middleman between us and the British government to uh, eliminate Hitler and have a, a peace and a fair peace for Germany. The German generals don't want to kill Hitler if it means there's going to be chaos or communism. And frankly, we know that neither does the Pope. So the Pope had a choice here, and he did something very radical, and he agreed to do it. And I think if you if readers could think about how profoundly strange it would be or surprising if, say, people in Moscow today, liberals or dissidents, said, you know, we don't want to live under Putin, we want to go to Pope Francis and ask if he'll be the intermediary with President Obama to have a regime change. Well, if that happened, it wouldn't be a footnote to history. It would be profoundly important. And so that's what I've looked at in this book. I consider what Pope Pius XII did in making himself an accessory to three plots to kill Adolf Hitler as an extremely important thing. And even the Pope's critics all admit that this happened, but they talk about it in a sentence or a paragraph or maybe, uh, you know, a phrase. I think it's worth more than that, and that's what I've talked about in Church and Spies. Okay, I would I'd like to touch... Well, let's just, just go... You've mentioned him now, Pope Pius XII. Could you just say a few, a few words about... He was, he was rather a unique personality, really, at that time in history, Pacelli. Uh, could you just touch on, on, uh, on the Pope? Well, uh, Eugenio Pacelli, Pope Pius XII, was probably the strangest Pope, I think, in history. 
at a personal level, he had a lot of quirks. Uh, for instance, he hated house flies, so he carried a fly swatter and a scabbard inside his papal robe, so that if you were in an audience with him, he could reach out and swat a fly that came and, you know, perched on the table, and people would be sort of surprised. Um, he worked for four decades in the papal foreign service before becoming pope. He was nuncio for 12 years in Germany, representing, being the papal agent in Germany, submitting coded reports back to the Vatican, doing things at the Vatican's behest, for instance, in 1923, uh, working against Hitler's first failed beer hall putsch, acting on Vatican orders to undercut Hitler and to make sure Hitler didn't achieve power. And the reason was because Hitler at that time had a lot of anti-Catholic rhetoric. And so that was the big uh, turning point. Uh, Hitler, at that, after that point, never trusted the church again, and he realized it was important to keep the church silent and to sort of disable it, keep it organizationally neutral. But I think the thing to remember about Pacelli is that he was a transitional pope. If you look at the span of his life, when he was born in 1876, General Custer was about to be ambushed at Little Bighorn. When he died in 1958, a rocket was about to orbit the moon. Now that's a pretty radical span of, uh, of, of change. We go from really um, the, the ni uh, 19th century world to the space age. And for the Vatican, this wasn't just going from the 19th century to the space age. It was like going from the 12th century to the space age. And so Pacelli had this project of bringing this medieval institution into the modern world. And it was through the fulcrum of this, the bloodiest years in history in the Second World War that this happened and then he had to make a lot of very uh, sharp choices. He came from a rather distinguished family that had been involved uh, in, in the church and in Vatican politics at a, at a very, very high level. Um, he uh, took a position early on uh, and stuck to it, and I think that's certainly one of the central themes of your book, and that is you give us to understand in the book that Pacelli was hearing, the Pope, was hearing from a number of his uh, bishops, nuncios, and so forth in, in other places to play down his denunciation of the Nazis and of Hitler because out of fear that if he came down hard on them, even to the point of, say, excommunicating Hitler or something of that nature, the Nazis would come down harder on the church and on the Catholics. And out of concern for that, he, he muted what would be his, you, you lead us to believe, his, his really uh, virulent uh, um, hatred of, of uh, the Nazis. Well, that's right. And in, in Church of Spies, I, I feel the two of the greatest contributions I make to this debate, um, the debate about the, the meaning of the silence of Pius XII um, on the Shoah, on the genocide of the European Jews, why he didn't say more uh, and louder and more often. This is a great, this is the great problem of the mystery of the 20th century uh, Roman Catholic Church. And my book makes two uh, contributions to this. First of all, um, the Pope, as readers of my book will find in chapter one, secretly taped his own meetings in the Vatican with the German cardinals when they came to visit in March 1939. And I was able to get the transcripts and to translate the transcripts of these uh, recordings that the, the Pope had done by Jesuit technicians working for Marconi, the inventor, inventor of the radio. And what these transcripts say very clearly is that the German cardinals are telling the Pope, the newly elected Pope, that they're afraid that if he 
uh, takes too hard of a line against Hitler in public, the German church will break away. Uh, German Catholics will see themselves as Germans more than Catholics and will break away as Henry VIII did under England. Uh, in, in England in the 16th century. Now, if you're Pope and your, ro your role in life, when you put on that Pope's hat and tiara, is to shepherd one billion souls to eternal life. And if you're going to lose 50 or 60 million souls by speaking out, well, you, you may not want to do that. If you believe that that's your role and you take it seriously. So I believe the records show that Pius XII felt he was in a position where he had to choose between souls and lives. And that was a very difficult position for him. And eventually, when he was presented with the option of getting rid of Hitler, he saw this as a way of cutting the Gordian knot and being able to save souls and lives both. That's number one. Number two is that once he made this decision and he was involved with the German resistance and he was in bed with them, the German resistance themselves, and I show this in the book through documents I was able to find in the Franklin Roosevelt Library in Hyde Park, the German resistance themselves the people trying to kill Hitler asked Pius XII not to speak out because they did not want dissident elements, resistance elements, people who already were of suspect loyalties and were just managing to stay one step ahead of the Gestapo. They didn't want themselves to come under scrutiny, to be arrested, to be immobilized, to lose their freedom of action against Hitler. So we know, we can, we can see how the Pope changed the text of his October 1939 encyclical in which he did defend Judaism and he did come pretty close to, in a lot of ways defending racism but we know by looking at the drafts of these this encyclical that he began dialing back his language that could be interpreted as directly pertaining to Germany and he only did this once he was in touch with the German resistance we can see it day by day on the 16th he made contact with the resistance on the 17th he began dialing back and um, modulating his criticism of Hitler so the correlation is very strong, and I would just uh, encourage people to read my book as a kind of corrective to a lot of the literature which says that, you know, he was Hitler's pope, Pius XII. Uh, I think, if anything, because he was willing to work with um, allied governments and with uh, Hitler's enemies, he, and he warned uh, the allies about Hitler's plans to invade not only Western Europe, but he gave them uh, indications and warning and intelligence about Hitler's plans to invade Russia, he was more Churchill's pope or even Roosevelt's pope. But then, at that point, I think we have to stop. We have to say, look, this doesn't mean he was Anne Frank's pope, okay? He was, a, he tried to be the pope of all the Catholics. I think it's a later development that the pope thought he had to be the pope for everyone else in the world, including non-Catholics, including Protestants, including Jews. That's something that comes in the 60s. And I do believe that because the church found itself in a very confused moral place, one of the good things that did come out of these terrible events of World War II was that the church did a lot of soul-searching. And in, it, in fact, it was the German Jesuits who worked for Pacelli in the Vatican who led the post-war movement for the church to correct its teachings on the Jews and to broaden it to, to teach that you know, the Jews did not kill Christ as a people. There's no curse on the Jewish people. The Jewish way to God is just as valid as the Christian way. And if you look at who was um, pushing these uh, revisions of doctrine, it was the German Jesuits who were meeting with uh, the conspirators against Hitler in the Vatican crypt in July of 1942 and discussing ways to build bridges between Catholics and other faiths. So this is a kind of elixir that comes out of these, these terribly tragic events. 
if the uh, if we had access to them and we had poll numbers for uh, for Germany in that period, I would take it that that Hitler's support by the German people at large was quite high, almost analogous to the Russian people's support of Putin today. Well, that's that's absolutely true, and uh, the. Historian John Lukash, I'm a great admirer of his work. He's pointed out, and I believe Ian Kershaw in his book The Hitler Myth pointed out as well, that as far as we know, Hitler was the most popular person in history until about 1941. And even in the 19, uh, November 1938, the month of Kristallnacht, uh, the Hitler is being featured in the Western press uh, in his uh, Better Homes and Gardens. There's a big Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous layout of his mountain home. He's considered this incredibly prestigious figure. And, and after all, uh, people say, well, the Vatican didn't cut relations with him. It did a deal with him in 1933. Well, nobody cut relations with Hitler, you know, not until he attacked Poland. So, you know, he was, he was a respected part of the international community up until the outbreak of the war. And I think people forget how popular he was with Germans uh, who really felt that they were empowered and proud again. And I think the analogy with Putin is not entirely um, misbegotten. You know, Hillary Clinton came under a lot of criticism when she compared Putin to Hitler because he invaded the Crimea and then declared a plebiscite. But, you know, the, the, the techniques are not totally dissimilar. I don't want to put us too far afield, but it just shows you that a lot of these problems are of eternal form. They keep coming back. Uh, there are always monster, monsters to be slain. And certainly today with the Islamic State, um, I know Pope Francis sees himself as having to walk a fine line between if he says too much publicly, Catholics in that part of the world can come under increased persecution and be beheaded and stuff like this. So um, a lot of these issues, I think, take – it's a great case study if you can look at World War II and how the church operated then. Um, you can see a lot of the signatures of the church acting as a – in a certain way, a clandestine organization without actually having a clandestine service. Yes. You, I, I think in reading your descriptions of the popes, that is, Pope Pius's uh, conversations with emissaries of the uh, resistance, if you will, um, you, you certainly describe a man who seems to be wholly committed to their cause. I, 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 and yet their cause at times seems to take on almost, well, if we could change the nature of Germany or, or bring forth the decent Germans and so forth. And, and it, it led me to wonder at points as if were the, were the resistance people, including some of the senior Nazis who were involved, like Admiral Canaris and so forth, were they sort of engaging in an academic thing? You know, if we had European, if it were different, um, would things change? Whereas... At other points in the book, you, you describe the, the, the pope as, as involved with the resistance to the point of writing secret notes and then burning them. Mm -hmm. um, so it almost leads me to wonder if the pope was in the position of, of almost like uh, Henry VIII saying, you know, who will rid me of this, of this turbulent priest, and, and, but stopping short of really engaging with the resistance. And I, I think you would say that's not so. Well, I, he definitely did not stop short. Uh, you know, Pope Pius XII went, went, went where, you know, a lot of German generals feared to tread. But I would say this, there's a pretty good analogy here in a number of ways with the Kennedy brothers' attempts to remove Castro. In other words, nobody, whether it was McNamara or there was Dulles or anyone was able to ever come up with a piece of paper that said the, the Kennedy brothers knew about this. 
Bobby Kennedy was pushing awfully hard for a lot of things, but no one has a piece of paper saying the president wanted the assassination of Fidel Castro. And yet I think most scholars uh, uh, of this episode in history would say, of course, you know, they were pushing it very hard. Um, and, and so that's one thing I'd, I'd say. And I'd also say that we have letters, which I've translated from the German Jesuits who are writing to each other, or they're writing from uh, Munich to Rome, and this is being secretly couriered across the Alps to the Vatican. And they're saying, well, we could use more guidance from Rome, but we're going to do what we think the Pope wants us to do. And if he doesn't like it, as we report back, well, we're going to leave it for him to correct us. Uh, that's, a, that's a pretty interesting thing. It sort of reminds me of... Uh, you know, what Ray Rocca, the former chief of the CIA um, research, counterintelligence research staff under Jim Angleton, he told me once when I, he was sort of my mentor in getting into this because Ray Rocca was with OSS in Rome and his job was to penetrate the Vatican, among other things, in 1944-45. And when I asked him about some of this stuff, he said, well, I can't tell you where you're right, but I can tell you where you're wrong. And so I had to be wrong about a lot of things before I put this together. But in a certain way, Pius XII is the same way. He wasn't necessarily... Uh, trying to control the puppet strings, but he would say what he didn't want done. He didn't want Catholics coming out and supporting Hitler's regime. He didn't want them not being involved with the resistance. And he used coded language. He said, I really want you to engage in manly actions. Now, what do you think those might be? If you're uh, working for the Kennedy brothers, and you know, it's pretty clear what manly actions with regard to, to Fidel Castro would be. And I think with Pacelli's four decades of work in backstairs statecraft and his earlier involvement with elements hostile to Hitler and his involvement with elements hostile to Hitler throughout the Second World War, uh, there were understandings. And I think uh, if you understand how the, the church works um, and how these things pattern themselves over time, um, it was pretty clear. And the one case that's most directly uh, arguing in, in favor of Pius XII's active blessing for actually assassination under the Catholic doctrine of tyrannicide was when a bomb was put on Hitler's plane in March 1943. Uh, we know from the testimony of um, Josef Mueller, the intermediary with the plotters and the Vatican, that he discussed this with Pius XII, and he said, well, we, we had to do it, we, because we were up against satanic forces, and that this was permissible to put a bomb on, on someone's plane, even if it might kill innocent people, uh, because the stakes were so high. And I regard Josef Mueller as a, a credible witness. Um, so did the Central Intelligence Agency, which hired him as a, um, an asset and paid him an, as an asset codenamed Robot for a number of years after World War II. The, um, and of course, the, 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 uh, the other liaison besides Joyox, the fellow you just described, was uh, also another Jesuit who was perhaps the closest immediate aid to Pope Pius XII, and that was Father Lieber, who was yes. also a Jesuit, who had no official title, but simply everyone knew spoke for the Pope. So between Lieber to Mueller to the conspirators, that was a fairly direct line of communication. Yeah, a very direct and, and short line. They did have redundancy built in, which is a good idea with any clandestine organization. As Alan Dulles once said, it's a good idea to be able to rest some lines sometimes. And so they had, the primary one was Father Liber, the Pope's Jesuit advisor who had, as you say, no, he was an unofficial official, but he saw the Pope every day, and um, he was some German SS people considered him the Pope's evil spirit or evil twin. Uh, he was, uh, he, he engaged in kind of strange things, like he had a living cell therapy where he, 
Father Liber received the uh, injected tissues of freshly slaughtered lambs, which were supposed to help him with his asthma. So this was a guy who was clearly capable of thinking outside the box in a, a, little, in a little way, a little bit. And um, he definitely kept the Pope um, buffered and insulated. Um, he, the Pope didn't directly meet with Joey Ox during the war and actually said through Father Liber, it must be established that you and I never met directly during the war. We need to be able to say later that we didn't meet so that we can deny this. And so whether it's plausible or implausibility, plausible deniability is definitely deniability, and this was built in. This is one of the things the church was very good at, is not putting itself in a position where it can be made to look ridiculous if something goes wrong. Well, you're very detailed in your answers, <clears throat> and I don't want to use the program to si simply uh, uh, have you spout a lot of spoilers, and then no one will read your book, because the book is fabulous. <laughs> well, there's lots but, more, uh, okay, more surprises in the is. book. So. I, and I, I'm exhausting my own uh, knowledge of, of having read it. I'm, uh, let me ask you one last thing that did strike me, and that was the sort of open conspiracy thinking against Hitler uh, by people in military, by Admiral Canaris and other senior German officers, including generals, in the Abwehr. Mm -hmm. And I would have thought that it just struck me it seemed so open and so easily penetratable by the counterintelligence people of the Nazi, uh, of the Nazi uh, makeup, including sure. who was it who started uh, doing sort of uh, oh, reading the cables of foreign embassies? Uh, but well, that was under uh, Goering's uh, right uh, wiretapping or you know communications but they used that against yes. their own people as well. But it seemed to me that I mean, actually, Mueller, Joy Ox, yep. you know, and, and a number of people went to Abwehr headquarters mm -hmm. to deal with these folks. I mean, it was, yeah. it seemed rather open to me. Well, here's the, there's an old saying during the Cold War, maybe you'd heard this, that uh, there is no better conversations in the world than conversations in Moscow between two people who really trusted each other. And... Um, when you really do trust someone and you take your life into their hands, it, it's almost like the seal of the confessional. The center of the resistance to Hitler in Germany was within the headquarters of military intelligence, German military intelligence, and they had been among those conservative elements of German society, which also included the German church to an extent, who had backed Hitler and then felt deeply betrayed by them by Hitler and by the Nazis. And the um, awakening for Admiral Canaris and his Confederates in military intelligence came in 1938, where the high command, the two number one and number two generals, had their sexual honor impugned on trumped-up charges by the SS and were um, taken out of, of power. And Hitler's people more amenable to Hitler's agenda were put in. And I think the writing was seen on the wall that this was going to be a more Soviet-style revolutionary regime with Stalinist-type uh, purges and uh, secret trials and trumped-up charges. But this was not going to be the rule of law. And to Canaris's credit, although he, he had to play both ends against the middle to keep his cover, he did do things. He smuggled a lot of Jews out, including the leading um, um, uh, Orthodox rabbi in Europe, Schneerson, in the first months of the war, he got him out of Poland. Um, and Canaris did a lot of things while maintaining his position and helping the German military. He was also acting behind the scenes with the help of the Pope to undercut Hitler. And so this shows, I think, we, in uh, the world of intelligence, people say there are no black and white, there's only gray. Well, that's not true. There's black 
and there's white, and together they make things that look gray. But to, in order to negotiate through this moral labyrinth, it helps when you can have a, a diamond-hearted uh, ideology like the church, like the Catholic doctrine, or even like communism. For, um, there was the Rote Capella, the, the Red Orchestra, uh, of believing communists who spied for Stalin against Hitler. And then there was something called the Schwarze Kapelle, the, the Black Orchestra, the Black Network. And that's what I write about in Church of Spies. The SS called it the Black Network because the color of priestly Catholics was black. Yeah. And, uh, and the story of the Black Network and how it engaged with um, the Western allies to try and overthrow Hitler is a fascinating epic. It covers three plots to kill Hitler. And uh, although they didn't work, they did leave a legacy, which I explain in the book, which actually we see today with Pope Francis's visit and what you saw at 9-11 with him reaching out to other faiths. That began as a kind of lifeboat ecumenism with uh, the Pope's blessing, uh, Catholics and Protestants meeting at the tomb of St. Peter in the Vatican crypt to discuss how to remove the Antichrist of our age. And the things they did, most of them went to the gallows. Some escaped, and I think we owe it to ourselves to retrace their steps through history through this labyrinth, and uh, I think it's a fascinating story, and I hope readers agree. Well, I think that's a wonderful note to, uh, to end our program on, I, and I would only mention to those listening to it that there's such general interest in, in uh, uh, the Protestant theologian Bonhoeffer that he also is brought into the story, and uh, his own role in this thinking is revealed, which I think is, is absolutely uh, reveal very revealing to me. I thoroughly enjoyed the book. I'm, I'm, I hope it does very, very well. And Mark, it's been an absolute delight talking to you today. Please come back. Thank you, Peter. I will. It's been an honor. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this author debriefing. We'd like to know if you have any questions or comments about it. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. We look forward to you joining us again for another of our author debriefings. And thanks for listening. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to share your feedback now.